Hello and welcome to one of a short series of podcasts which will investigate aspects of impact assessment from four different perspectives or four different lenses. Please keep the conversation going by tweeting any thoughts with the hashtag ImpactFrameworks. Thank you for listening. My name is Sana Zakaria and I work for NIHR. Today I'm talking to Maeva May, who's the head of policy at the British Heart Foundation, about her views on the use of impact assessment for advocacy from her personal and professional perspective. Advocacy is obviously reliant on strong evidence, convincing arguments that resonate with your audience. Now, seeing the recent impact of COVID-19 on the charity sector research funding, what kind of impact assessments have featured in your advocacy agenda to the government? Um, As the audience will well know, um, pretty much every sector has been impacted by the pandemic and the charity sector is no exception. Um, Certainly, we've had to close our our retail stores, fundraising um, has been stopped. And and unfortunately, um, the the hits to the bottom line are really translating to potential cuts um, in research. Um, most charities have all taken, done everything they could to, to mitigate that impact. They, they have tried to reduce the number of jobs, reduce and find, find efficiencies wherever that they could, really to prioritize um, uh, research wherever they could. But, but really, at the end of the day, um, cuts had to be a part of the consideration. And so um, you'll know that um, the charity sector as a whole predicted a, a 310 million pound loss in uh, in future research funding over the, over this past financial year because because of the pandemic. Um, and so we went out really early as a sector and argued for what we call the Life Sciences Charity Partnership Fund, which was an ask of government to just while charities um, recovered financially and found new ways to fundraise and um, as we allowed stores to reopen, could the government stabilize the research ecosystem with with a a time-limited, time-bound fund to support research? To your earlier question about um, impact assessments, the the, the assessment or the case that we had to make to government and, and, and to the sector as, at large was what would a loss of charity research funding really translate into? H- how much impact would it have on the research ecosystem? Um, as you can imagine, the government had so many fires to put, put out and so much funding to direct in, in a multitude of areas that, that the key was to make the case for why charity research was so critical to the research ecosystem. Um, so uh, we um, uh, ch- charity research as a whole, and, and, and the British Heart Foundation isn't unique in, in this sense, but um, has a, a huge impact on the research funding ecosystem as a whole. We fund over half of all cardiovascular research that's um, uh, non-industry research. It's more than the Medical Research Council and NIHR combined, specifically in cardiovascular research. And um, and what we were really concerned about was if we had to cut research, how would it destabilize cardiovascular science? So um, we worked with the Institute of uh, Public Policy Research to pull together a report um, that really outlined how um, charity-funded research not only brings a patient voice to research, but equally de-risks the transition of academic research into industry. 
And um, we we painted the impact of what it would mean to not low, not to have charity funding between now and 2027. Um, and that's the kind of assessments that we needed to, to really convince or, or make the case for charity funded research. So in the best case scenario, what, what that modeling predicted was that um, between now and 2027, there'd be 1.4 billion pound less investment in, in um, charity funded research. But in the worst case scenario, if truly it took a long time for uh, the charity sector to recover, for stores to open back up, or if future waves of the pandemic had again um, adverse impacts, um, you, we might be looking at um, an investment of 4.1 billion pounds less um, in, in health R&D. Um, so those kinds of impact assessments are critical, really, to just cut through the noise and say, you know, the reason that we're having this discussion here is not about the British Heart Foundation, it's not about what charities specifically do, but about a greater, uh, a greater discussion about what's needed for the research ecosystem to thrive. Was it, was it particularly challenging in articulating this kind of, um, uh, you know, undertaking this assessment and articulating that to the government? It was, um, and there were a couple of challenges. Um, the first is obviously trying to paint the impact of cuts as you are in the midst of the storm. Um, really um, uh, modeling data as we were just trying to even assess the impact in general um, to our own organization was was a huge challenge. And um, thankfully, we were closely with a, a wonderful umbrella organization called the Association of Medical Research Charities, who was harmonizing the questions that were being asked of charity sector leaders um, to say, hey, these are the, this, this is the kind of data, this is the kind of information that we need to be able to have productive conversations with government uh, about painting that picture around the impact um, to, to charity funded research. I think harmonization of data, just like everything, is always a challenge. Um, key approaches, consistency in approaches and how we define the questions. Um, and then obviously it's always easier to do things in retrospect than future looking. So retrospective studies and analyses are always much, much easier. Just switching gears a little bit from the pandemic to cardiovascular research, I'm really interested in your opinion on what kind of evidence is needed to really galvanize the cardiovascular research agenda, given the large disparity between the burden of disease that we see versus the investment that goes into cardiovascular research. And that over the years, that large gap, it hasn't really decreased. Um, you know, what, what are your views on that? Yeah, it, it is one of the, the wicked problems around um, cardiovascular research spend and, and just underserved um, disease areas and specifically. So cardiovascular, for sure, um, it has, compared to disease burden, uh, underinvestment in research, but neurological conditions, mental health conditions also have that underspend compared to disease burden. 
Um, and, and we look at that really carefully. Um, obviously, within the British Heart Foundation, we had been on a year-on-year -year growth in growing our own investment in this space. Um, and um, in, in trying to really understand uh, what is driving disease burden and whether research investment is in specifically just cardiovascular research is, is the answer to all of this. And I think that um, much like many of our policy areas where we look at a, a whole system approach rather than just the one factor that um, in isolation, I, I do think that we have to take a little bit of a step back and just say, what is it that we need to be doing in non-communicable diseases to improve population level health as a whole? We, we know that um, people... Um, more people live with more long-term conditions than ever before. Uh, right now, around one in four of us have two or more long-term conditions. And when you're over 65 years of age, that rises to two out of three people are living with conditions such as heart disease in combination with diabetes or in combination with cancer, et cetera. So I do think that the, the, the way that we look at these questions is not about can we fund just more cardiovascular specific research? But what can we fund that really prevents people from getting sick in the first place? So prevention research specifically. And when people do get sick and often live with one or more disease conditions, how do we best support them to live the healthiest lives that they can? So I'll give you an example. Um, the British Heart Foundation is a co-founder of the UK Prevention Research Partnership. And that's an alliance of research funder that has committed £50 million to, to look at the primary prevention of non-communicable diseases. Um, and really to, to come with some conclusions, hopefully, that will help policymakers and practitioners just have even more evidence in really ensuring that people maintain healthier lives for longer. But in terms of those impact assessments, they're complicated, right? They're, they're, um, that, that means looking at multiple factors into, into what drives one outcome. Um, in, um, I'll give you a specific example that around um, obesity policy, this current government has committed to obesity, an obesity strategy, a really um, innovative, forward-leaning strategy to ensure that people can live healthier lives. And the, the assessments that we need is that we know that one intervention isn't going to solve the obesity epidemic that we have right now. But a raft of interventions, of policy interventions in combination might. Really to make a difference in disease burden at this point in time, I think we have to be tolerant of the complexity of the problems that we're looking at and really um, ensure that we design impact assessments that that can address that complexity of the problem and can ideally look at more than one factor at a time. question for you today, Mova, is about science behind paywall. Now, 
This has been the subject of lots of debates in the last few years and, you know, with the huge movement around Plan S, um, the UK funding landscape is still kind of largely undecided on this, working out the implications of undertaking this approach. Now, is there a role for impact assessments here to drive this agenda forward? It's an excellent question. Um, I think the ambitions of Plan S are are. In- are fabulous, really, to to ensure that publicly funded research is freely available to the greatest number of people or to new AI platforms to, to share our knowledge and grow our knowledge, build it out. Um, but but I think um, equally, we have to realize that the the uh, that publishers are a big part of this landscape. And first of all, we have to build policy with publishers as part of that conversation. One of the one of the sticking points around um, open access it has been around how much you charge for articles to be processed, and obviously publishers have um, um, ensure that the science that's published is appropriately peer reviewed, has the appropriate level of review in in, in the figures and um, that that go along with it. But really, if there was an area that could use some focus is what what are reasonable article processing charges? So, so these charges that are associated with articles, what does FAIR mean um, that will allow publishers to still um, do the amazing jobs that they do in coordinating and review and ensuring um, the rigor that all of these articles um, are published under? while still keeping prices low enough to allow for an open access platform to thrive. Um, there, th- those two do seem a little bit at odds for one another, and funders do have their part in, in, in this discussion. Um, for example, within the BHF, we have supported um, a payment of these fees specifically to ensure that our research is immediately available to to um, anyone in the public who wants to read it, um, because we believe um, in the principles of open access. But the 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 increasing and occasionally skyrocketing fees around article um, publications ha- have to be looked at. So I think one impact assessment that's obvious is really around what what a fair, reasonable publication fee looks like. Um, and, and then a, a little bit of a separate question um, that you haven't asked, but tangentially related. Um, I think impact assessments on what makes for a brilliant research career would be would be something that would be welcome to this discussion. So right now, part of the reason that this open access discussion really gets thorny is that journal impact factors, so really how, how, how well viewed these publications are, has an outsized impact with a researcher's career progress. And so we don't have a, a clear metric for, for example, um, the researcher who produces brilliant other researchers through their labs, who support science through team science, collaborative science, what, what do those impact assessments look like for, for that type of science and for that type of reward? And I think if we could uncouple journal impact factor from a, a career progression in research, I, I think we would see a shifting conversation as well.
Do you have any last words you wish to say to our listeners, Maeva, on advocacy and impact assessments? Uh, mostly a note of thanks. Um, we cannot do our work as policy professionals advocating for change if we don't have an evidence base. And while um, while we never have perfect data and we don't expect perfect data, um, any kind of data does help fill in the white space and help really hone down on what the appropriate policy interventions are or should be. Um, equally, just I don't think I'll have to convince this audience of it, but evaluation of past policy is is as key as as future looking um, and just um, a continued call that evaluation be part of everything that we do. Thank you for listening to this podcast. It's one of four in a series exploring different impact lenses. Please return to the website to discover the others. And don't forget to tweet us your comments and questions at hashtag impactframeworks. And once again, thank you for listening.